For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word, every word that goes out from his mouth shall not return empty. It will accomplish his purposes. And what God has ordained to happen will happen. This is what Isaiah is saying here. And of course, this applies to the scriptures that we call the Bible. The specific messages and words that God has chosen to give us in this book shall accomplish his purposes. This is what Isaiah is saying. And God has specific purposes in mind with scripture, specific ways it's meant to impact not only humanity uh, and the world, but ways that it's meant to impact us individually. And when it comes to God's purposes through the Bible, it is fully sufficient on its own to carry out those purposes. The Bible in itself provides everything needed to carry out God's plan. And for us, this means that the Bible gives us everything we need to be saved. And not only that, but it gives us everything we need to live in fellowship with God. One of the most famous phrases in the world, uh, and you'll hear this all over the place, is that man does not live by bread alone. And outside of the church, it's used to speak generally about emotional needs or spiritual needs is how you hear it a lot of times. But as most of us probably know, the actual conclusion to that phrase was spoken by Jesus Christ, uh, and it's that man also lives really by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, not just by bread alone. And this idea of God's word being satisfying or sufficient is also found in the prophets. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. And this is what we're going to spend our time looking at today, this concept of how does the sufficiency of Scripture, of God's Word, work in the life of a Christian? What does it look like in our lives, really, for us to rely on God's Word to sustain us and fill us? And we're going to look at six specific ways in which the Bible is sufficient and how this impacts us. And all of these are going to be found in Psalm 19, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And as we read through these six concepts, we'll see they're very concise in the way they're communicated in the psalm, which is really nice. And so we're going to look at one specific prophet, Micah, today, and we're going to see if Micah can expand on these concepts. So let's start with verse 7 in Psalm 19, and we'll just read through verse 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 19 was written by King David, and as we just read, David is praising some specific gifts given to us by God. The law, the testimony, the precepts and commandments, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. And these six concepts together, together give us a broad, uh, but very clearly defined way to view the scriptures that God's given us, and also to how we are supposed to interact with these scriptures. And this particular psalm is interesting. It's very special because it is God telling us how to view his word, how to view the Bible. They not only describe certain aspects of God's word, as we just read, but they also tell us how we should view them, what our reaction should be when we read God's word. 
which is the point of the Bible, to have an impact on us. And that's the reason we're going to use Micah today to help us expand on these concepts, because Micah was very intent on having an impact on his audience. Micah is one of the so-called minor prophets. He lived about 700 years before Jesus' birth, and Micah had a deep desire for Israel to seek the Lord. And at that time, Israel was seeking other cultures. They were turning to other gods. They were even looking for protection from other countries' armies rather than relying on God. And the book of Micah was his teachings trying to show them that the Lord Yahweh was all they needed. And so as a result, the book of Micah is filled with descriptions of who God is and how exactly God desires for Israel and for us to follow him. And so as we read through the six concepts presented by David in the psalm, we'll also look at the words that God inspired Micah to write. And hopefully this will help us understand more about God himself and his word. So let's look at the first line of the psalm. Uh, Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And the Hebrew word here used for law is Torah, uh, which many of us know. And of course, that doesn't just mean the commandments, but it actually means the entirety of what God has revealed and instructed. And David is saying that God's word is completely perfect. It lacks nothing when it comes to reviving our souls from death. And the King James translation is really interesting. Those translators chose to translate that verse as the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul rather than reviving. Uh, But either way, the first way in which God's word is sufficient is in its ability to save. The Bible isn't lacking anything when it comes to communicating how a person can become right before God. In other words, the Bible fully communicates what God asks of us. And when Micah was prophesying over Israel, God's people were at that time losing sight of what God was asking of them. So turn with me to Micah 6, verse 6. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So Micah's making two important points here. First, he's looking at legitimate Jewish practices, such as burnt offerings, which were ordained by God. And he's warning the nation of Israel not to elevate those above what God intended. And by that, he's communicating that God's ultimate desire is not that Israel would sacrifice animals to cover their sin. That's not the ultimate aim of what God's looking for. What God really wants is what Micah tells us here, which is for us to act justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Micah's second point is seen in the latter part of verse 7 when he talks about giving your firstborn. Second Kings actually tells us that during this exact time, during the time that Micah was prophesying over Israel, Israel was practicing child sacrifices, which they had incorporated from other religions, uh, from other nations, and Second King tells us that explicitly. This had been banned by God, this practice, and in God, instead God taught his people that children were a precious inheritance, and he had told them not to practice such things as child sacrifices. And I think Micah mentions this specifically alongside the legitimate Jewish practices, such as burnt offerings, to make a point that God's word is sufficient without us needing to grow it or add to it or just expand on it in some way that God didn't intend. 
And that could include taking legitimate commandments from God and elevating those above what, above what God really wants. And it could also include, as it says, what Israel was doing and incorporating into God's word other things from other cultures. And in this instance, it was what could be considered a moral trend uh, from the societies around Israel. And morality in society, as we know, is constantly changing and evolving and telling us what we need to do in order to be seen as just and righteous. And I've always remembered when I think about this concept of morality changing, uh, a description that Pastor Tim Keller gave on worldly morality and how fickle and fleeting it is. And he described it like this, given what we see across history, the way morality has varied wildly across history, do you really believe that an average person doesn't have beliefs right now, today, that 50 years from now could be looked on at best as embarrassing and at worst as evil? For example, even as recently as 200 years ago, slavery was almost universally seen as appropriate. There was nothing immoral about it. And it wasn't until Anglican and Quaker Christians stepped in in England that the culture began to correctly identify slavery as evil. At any given time, our current culture may deem some particular thing as moral and appropriate. And beyond that, it may also deem something as necessary to be seen as righteous. And then less than a couple lifetimes later, uh, it changes and comes to a realization that what it thought was righteous was absolutely not. So do we really want to incorporate into our foundational beliefs what our culture happens to be telling us today what is proper and moral, when we know that 50 years from now, it's a coin flip as to whether culture happened to get it correct. As Christians, we are freed from this burden. As Micah said, God has told us what is good. And while societies may change, and you can even see that across the Bible, God's truths and what holiness is to God does not change. And scripture is fully sufficient to reveal that to us. The second line of Psalm 19.7 continues this concept of God's word being perfect and steadfast. It says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Reading the Bible and studying the Bible is not just for pastors and teachers and scholars. Anyone who desires wisdom, and we all should, must turn to the Bible to find it. And so as the psalm says here, the second way in which God's word is sufficient is in giving us wisdom. Our own hearts and our minds are constantly seeking ways to invent our own wisdom, and it usually comes along with us trying to justify our desires. Our natural response to something that we want is to figure out how we can have it, and we tend to develop this into a type of wisdom. Uh, so does culture, and this wisdom is really just wisdom of trying to justify how to do evil. And a large portion of Micah is dedicated to reprimanding Israel for their shift into doing evil rather than good. Chapter 2, verse 10 of Micah says, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, referring to Israel. This is no place to rest because of its uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. At this time, not only had people abandoned their moral compass, but they were so distant from God that Micah tells them that a preacher's wisdom would only be accepted if he were speaking of wine and strong drink. And this is what happens when we rely on false wisdom, wisdom that speaks to us of evil as if it were good. And sin is made even more dangerous when this kind of false wisdom accompanies the sin and says, no, this is, this is good. In fact, Micah, just a few verses later, just specifically says that Israel hated what was good and loved what was evil. 
They had so warped God's truths that they hated what God loved, and they loved what God hated. 1 Corinthians 5 deals with a similar situation uh, when it says, it's actually reported, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. If we aren't relying on the Bible for wisdom, we will stray further and further from God's truths, and we won't even realize that we're doing it. We'll be proud of what we've become. And looking back at Micah, he says that the people crying to the Lord will not find the Lord answering them. Israel was in a place where they practiced sin and cried that it was good, and God hid his face from them when they sought him. This is why we must rely on God's word to give us wisdom and discernment, which it is fully sufficient to do. Not only does it have practical wisdom, like we might read in the Proverbs, uh, which is just as relevant today as it was then, maybe even more relevant today, to be honest, but it also has supernatural wisdom, which is wisdom of a kind that unbelievers around us are blinded to. Wisdom that allows us to discern what God's will is and what God's heart is. So if you desire wisdom, study the Bible. Reading it, studying it, learning from it will give a person more wisdom than reading every other book on earth. And Psalm 19 says that knowing God's word will give us joy. Verse 8 continues and says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So the third way in which God's word is sufficient is in its ability to provide us with joy. And if we look back to the first verses we read of the psalm, there's kind of a path being drawn here. First, we're saved. Then we're made wise to the truths of God. And now those who are wise can rejoice in the precepts of God, in his statutes and his commandments. Because we can understand that God is completely good. And as we read earlier in the psalm, we know that God's words are completely perfect and steadfast and that God's morality is true morality. And this is something that, like we talked about, no other belief system or culture on earth has absolute truth. And the joy is that this reveals to us what is pleasing to God. Scripture tells us what God is asking from us, and this should give us joy that we know. We know what's pleasing to God. In the midst of Micah's pleading with Israel to turn to God, he says in chapter 4, verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I have afflicted and the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. If you look at this passage, you can see some of the precepts of God here. Forgiveness on his part towards Israel. Reconciliation hope, and protection for Israel. These are some of the directives by which we can live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. So we can rejoice in these precepts, not only because we know that they are absolutely righteous and true, but we can also rejoice because the Bible reveals to us, it's fully sufficient to reveal to us what we can do to honor God and to glorify him. Claudius Gallinus, a late first century Greek philosopher who was not a Christian, wrote this about Christians in the late first century. Sometimes Christians show such behavior as is adopted by philosophers. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. There are among them those who possess such a measure of self-control with regard to food and drink and who are so bent on justice that they do not fall short of those who profess philosophy and truth. Claudius Gallinus is not a Christian, and this is something that he wrote 
uh, in out, extra Christian uh, documentation that we can read of him describing what Christians were like in the first century. And here's the point. Empires have risen and fallen in the 2,000 years since he wrote this, since he wrote what he was observing in Christians, but God's word has not changed in this time, and it, sh- it shall not change forever. The same words that guided those Christians are what can guide us today. We have the exact same book they had, which should bring us joy. And God doesn't intend for us to not, he doesn't intend for us to just read the Bible and then stop there. He wants us to absorb what we're reading and shape our lives around the commandments and precepts that he teaches us, which it seems to be what these Christians that Claudius Galenus uh, was reading about did. Reading the Bible and letting it stop there will not give us the kind of joy that the psalmist is talking about when he says that God's precepts rejoice the heart. This is the kind of joy that only comes from truly loving God's word, from wanting to read more, from wanting to learn more, and from worshiping God for who he is, revealed to us through his word. And the next line in the psalm expands on this. It says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And this reads at first similar to the earlier verse about God's testimony giving wisdom. But enlightening the eyes, that phrase, I think is worth dwelling on. Uh, This verse is saying that God's word is sufficient to remove spiritual blindness from our eyes which is the fourth way here that God's word is sufficient, to remove our blindness, to allow us to see paths that are darkened to us apart from knowing God. Micah 4 verse 1 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. A situation is being described here in which peoples from all nations are seeking to know God and to walk in his paths, to follow in his ways. And the primary goal of God's word is not to enlighten our eyes as to our own paths, to give us guidance as to which college degree we should pursue or which job we should take. Though it does do that, we see it do it all the time, but the primary, word of, the primary goal of God's word is to enlighten our eyes to his paths and his ways. We should go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, as Micah said, seeking to learn more about God and his ways. Though, of course, in learning who God is, we do learn who we are. And whether Micah's prophecy up on the screen is talking about a time in the future where there's a literal mountain that people are going to, and that may be what it's talking about, or if it's referring to the metaphorical mountain of John 12, 32, where Jesus says he'll be lifted up above the earth and draw all people unto him, and it may be referring to that, or maybe both. Either way, the goal is the same. Micah's trying to communicate that we should seek God's paths, and we can do this by knowing Jesus more, by reading scripture, by praying, and by really studying the Bible. And when Micah says here that the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem, this has happened. We're not in Jerusalem, but we have it here. It's all over the earth. We have the book that teaches us the paths of the Lord. And as Christians, this path of righteousness has been revealed to us, and it's the path of Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians says, our faces have been unveiled, and we are in the process of being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this act of transformation, of enlightenment, is something we should all be seeking. 
And while we may have once sought it out of guilt due to our knowledge of sin, we now know that Jesus has paid our debt, and so we seek this transformation as an act of worship. We love Jesus for what he did, and we don't want to become more like him because we feel guilty. We should become, want to become more like him because we love him and we're thankful for what he's done. And to do this, we need to be able to discern what the paths of the Lord are. The book of Acts describes the moment that the gospel reached the city of Beria, and it says that the Berians were hearing Paul and Silas preach, and they were studying the scriptures daily to see if these things they were hearing were true, to see if what they were hearing really lined up with the scriptures. And God describes this act that they were doing as noble, that they sought to be enlightened by God's word. The nobility here came from their reliance on God's word, not from just a blind acceptance of what Paul and Silas were saying. What was noble was the fact that they heard it and then searched the scriptures to see if what they were hearing was true, and that's the enlightenment we should seek. We should look at everything around us through the lens of God's word. We should seek God's truth through prayer and through studying the Bible. And as God reveals more to us of himself, we will desire to worship him more. The next line of the psalm, uh, at this point where verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the word here used for clean, the Hebrew word, is the exact same word used to ceremonially clean animals. So that word is describing something that's been purified, something that's not dangerous or corrupting. And so I think the message here is that a fear of the Lord is not only healthy, but totally appropriate. A natural and deeply ingrained human response to incredible power is both fear and worship. And you can see this across all of humanity. You can see it throughout history. When men see power, uh, they're almost inexplicably drawn to both fear and worship it. And this is probably why, probably why volcanoes were worshipped for thousands of years, or why even today there are some countries who still worship their leaders who hold all the power. They worship them like gods. But these things are just created things. They are expressions of power, and they, not, they are not power itself. And it is, of course, God, the creator, whom people should really fear. Micah 1 verse 2 says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and, is, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Which is pretty intense. Uh, but an appropriate and proper response to the sin of Israel and to our sin is for the mountains to melt and the valleys to be split open. This is how righteous and pure God is. And God gives us his word so that we can understand this. His word is meant to show us who is truly powerful, who is truly to be feared and worshipped. And so the fifth way in which God word, God's word is sufficient is in its ability to create worship. We don't need anything besides the Bible to help us understand this fact. It clearly communicates that there is no one as just as God, no one as pure, as holy, as righteous. There is no one more deserving of worship than God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, that we shouldn't fear that which can destroy our bodies, but we should fear that which can destroy our bodies and souls in hell. For Christians, this fear isn't something that we should be paralyzed by. 
because Jesus also says that he's going to prepare a place for us and that he will surely take us with him so that we may be where he is. So we worship God not only because he's the ultimate authority and power and judge, but we worship him because his word teaches us that he has made a way for us, a way for us to be with him through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the last line of the psalm we've been looking at says that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God has placed our sin upon Jesus Christ, and we never have to fear that God's words will prove to be untrue and that he'll forsake us. It is completely and unchangingly steadfast. The Bible will be true forever and ever, and it says his words are righteous altogether. The book of Micah closes the very end, the last passage in the book of Micah, in verse 6, 18, says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So given everything else Mike has been saying, and I encourage you to read the whole book. It's actually pretty amazing. Given everything else he's been saying, that our sin is cause for God to melt the mountains and split the valleys, after all of that, that Micah would end this way with a message of hope is pretty incredible. Not only is God's word sufficient to inspire fear and worship, but it is also fully sufficient to provide us with hope. So the sixth way we're seeing here in the psalm is that God's word is sufficient in its ability to provide a hope that is true and that cannot be found anywhere else in the world. And when Micah wrote this, he might not have understood exactly how God would accomplish this, what he says, pardoning of iniquities and passing over of transgressions. But he knew that God was not only a God of judgment, but also of mercy. And Micah knew this not because he thought about it a lot and decided that it was true. He knew it because God had revealed it to him. And God also reveals it to us through his word. God's word is sufficient to give us a hope that is impossible apart from him. And the scriptures we have cover thousands of years of human history, showing us in great detail how humanity fails over and over and over again to love God. And this is exactly the same for you and me as it is for the Israelites. We fail God in exactly the same way. Apart from God, we will never muster up enough righteousness on our own to do the right thing. And so the Bible tells us that after countless ages of humanity being given a chance over and over again to stop sinning, when it's been made abundantly clear that no matter how many chances he gives us, we will never do what we know we should do. When it looks like all hope is lost, Micah says that God will again have compassion on us. And this ultimate act of compassion is so gracious and so sweeping that Micah says it provides a way for God to cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. All of our failures, all of our shortcomings, all the ways we fail to love God the way that we should, God will cast them into the depths of the sea. And Micah might not have understood how this could happen exactly, uh, but maybe he did understand it. It's also possible he did, because if you look at chapter 5, verse 2, which is written 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah said this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth for me, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who has in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So almost 3,000 years ago, before this scripture, almost 3,000 years ago, when this scripture was written, it was stating clearly that a ruler would come from Bethlehem. And not just any ruler, but it describes him as one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah says that this ruler will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and that he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Sometimes I wonder what, when Micah was writing this and the people were listening, what they thought this meant at that time. Because to us, it's obvious beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's talking about Jesus Christ. And the six ways that we read in which Scripture is sufficient, they find their fullness and completion in Jesus Christ. He is salvation and wisdom and joy and enlightenment and power and hope. In Jesus, there is nothing lacking. He tells us that whoever drinks the water of life that he gives will never thirst. And if we look inside ourselves or if we look at the world hoping to be filled, we will always find ourselves thirsty and dry because there's nothing we can conjure up in ourselves and nothing we can find in the world that is sufficient to save us. Salvation can only be found in God's word and in Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is the word. And so for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we can trust that he is fully sufficient to save us. Because as we read in Isaiah, the word that goes out from God's mouth shall not return empty. It shall accomplish the purpose for which God sent it. And Jesus shall accomplish the purposes for which God sent him, salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this short time that we could spend together today, Lord, reading about the ways in which your word is sufficient, Father. Please help us turn to it, Lord, for all that we seek, Father. And thank you for revealing through it, Lord, the beauty and the truth of Jesus Christ, the King. Thank you that we find our completeness in him, Lord. As the Bible says, every promise finds its fullness in him, Lord. Thank you for Jesus, Father, and for the Bible. May we love it, Lord. May we love reading it, Father. Please give us this passion, Lord, to seek your truths, Lord, through the Bible and not through the world, Lord, because we know we will not find it in the world. Thank you, Father, for this gift, Lord, your scriptures, and for your son, Jesus Christ, the King. In his name we pray, Lord. Amen.